Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. So we take a look at some pronouncements or non-pronouncements from the SEC. What's the role of HR on onboarding and compliance? How can you improve a corporate culture? Looking back at Serpico at 50 and the Salt Lake City Olympics at 25. All on this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance podcast with me, Christy Grant Hart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and this week we're covering the new law allowing bribe requesters to be jailed, the problems posed for compliance by emojis, what's in and what's out in 2024 for the workplace, and Florida woman's quest against a Reese's Pieces Halloween peanut butter treat. But first, Tom, I think I may know the answer to this, but how has your week been and what do you think is the most interesting development? Well, my week started off with a bang, Christy, as the (laughs) University of Michigan won the college football championship in Houston, Texas with me in attendance. So I want to say it's been all downhill since then, but uh, that was certainly the uh, one of the highlights before, of course, seeing you uh, this week. So (laughs) Outstanding. Congratulations. Go blue. Go blue. So there you go. Um, Where should we start? I think we start with Delaware and your very interesting uh, article that you sent, which I completely geeked out on. So why don't we start there? Excellent. So this comes to us from Kevin LaCroix. Uh, from the DNO Diary. First of all, shout out to Kevin, a fellow U of M law grad, although he graduated a year before me. Uh, if you don't read the DNO Diary, subscribe to it. It, uh, as you might uh, garner by its name, it focuses on directors and officers' liability. But Kevin's remit is really much broader than that. He talks about fraud, he talks about FCPA, and he talks a lot about directors' liability uh, and officers' liability in the state of Delaware. And this case comes to us from the state of Delaware. It's extraordinarily significant, Christy, because it's the first case to discuss officer liability under Caremark. Uh, We've had director liability under Caremark since the 1990s, I believe, 96. But in 2023, we had our first case where the Delaware uh, Court of Chancery found a duty um, under Caremark for officers. So that was a very significant ruling in this case, which is Segway um, and uh, Chai, or Judy Kai, rather, who was Segway's president at the time, um, were sued because of uh, loss in value of shares of the company. And uh, it's not unusual to have a shareholder litigation. In fact, it's pretty common in Delaware, but uh, as uh, the judge points out, the uh, barrier or the uh, uh, to obtain a uh, get past summary judgment is extremely high in Caremark claims, and many judges call it the highest duty because a board and now officers have to engage in bad faith. That does not mean negligence. That does not mean I made a mistake. That means you actively 
ignored your duty or uh, you actively engaged in conduct uh, antithetical to your uh, legal obligations. And that's a pretty high bar. Occasionally, we've seen it in Caremark cases, but this is the first case to analyze it from the officer. So it made it extremely prescient, extremely important. And the shareholders recognize they had a, a tough duty against the directors. So they went, uh, focused most of their efforts against uh, Kai, the president at the time of Segway. And the court held that that approach was misplaced because the same duties and that same high bar uh, extend down to the uh, officers of a company. And once again, simply because you make a mistake or you make the wrong bet or you do the wrong thing, uh, under the business judgment rule, you're still going to be protected in Delaware. So this case analyzes the legal obligations as they play out for officers. It makes it very important and a highly significant case. But I'm going to circle back to where I started. If you don't subscribe to the DNO Diary, do. <laughs> It's one of the, the really top-notch blogs. Uh, he posts, I think, three days a week. And uh, I'm, uh, there's always at least one article per week. It's uh, directly on point for the work we do as compliance professionals. Yeah, Tom, I loved this. I completely lawyer geeked out on it. Um, you know, when the, when the McDonald's case came out, basically saying that officers had a really important duty that they could be sued for by shareholders, there was much consternation, um, you know, in the DNO insurance and with all kinds of people about whether or not essentially CEOs or CFOs could be sued for doing a bad job. And I think that this opinion was so clear as to when those folks can be actually held responsible for these decisions. I thought it was extremely well written. I thought the analysis was really strong. What do you think the ramifications are of this case specifically um, in business? Well, uh, Chrissy, I I always felt like um, there should not have been gnashing of teeth mm. uh, with the McDonald's decision, and it seemed to me to almost be a logical extension that officers would owe a duty of care to their to their corporations similar to directors. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no new duties placed upon officers. The thing about McDonald's, frankly, that made it so significant to me, Christy, was that the trial judge in that case said. CEOs are number one in a corporation, but guess who's number two? Who has visibility across everything? CCOs. Mm-hmm. So I thought it elevated the role of the CCO. Um, but in terms of putting on extra obligations or duties, officers already have those. You're an officer in your company. You have those duties to your shareholders um, and uh, to the comp- corporation. So, yeah, I, I didn't feel... McDonald's was a need for a gnashing of teeth, and uh, the court opinion here, I think, uh, upholds that analysis. I love it. Well, we're going to see some other interesting actions potentially from a court soon um, based on our next article, which is from the Wall Street Journal. It's by our friend of the podcast, Mankey Sun, and it's titled, U.S. Prosecutors Can Charge Foreign Officials with Bribery Under New Provision. So this is really big news. Um, For the first time, the National Defense Authorization Act has made it a crime for a foreign official to solicit a bribe from an American person or company or ask for a bribe in a U.S. US jurisdiction. So the law is aimed at curbing the demand side of bribery. Obviously, the FCPA criminalizes companies that offer bribes to foreign government officials. But this act now allows foreign officials who ask for bribes to be prosecuted. 
So the penalties for these government officials can be pretty steep, up to three times the amount of the bribe or $250,000. That actually seems quite low to me, for the record, and imprisonment up to 15 years, which does, in fact, seem very problematic. Uh, critics of the law said it's not going to be terribly useful as foreign officials can ignore U.S. subpoenas and charges. However, if they do, it wouldn't be a very comfortable life in traveling as they won't be able to go anywhere with an extradition treaty to the U.S., nor can they come to the U.S., including Tom Vegas, without being arrested, which is no fun at all. So the new law known as, I don't know if it's going to be FEPA, FIPA, whatever we're going to be calling it, was described by a director of advocacy for Transparency International as, quote, without question, the most consequential anti-foreign bribery law passed in almost 50 years, unquote. So, Tom, do you agree with the director of advocacy statement? Do you think that this is hugely important, lives up to the hype? How do you think this will change the landscape? Well, uh, actually, I've been trying to think about this in terms of uh, you're the chief compliance officer, you're going through an internal investigation, and you determine that a foreign official has solicited a bribe from one of your employees. Whether or not you've paid it, uh, say you've paid it, and you've self-disclosed that, do you self-disclose the solicitation of the bribe or the extortion? Do you save that and use that to negotiate with the government? Do you say uh, when you're near uh, nearing settlement, oh, by the way, we can give you foreign official why? Uh, does the government say we want your full investigation and we want your cooperation mm. in prosecuting foreign official why? Uh, that's if you have paid a bribe. Now, what do you do, Christy, if you have an effective compliance program, a foreign government official solicits a bribe from one of your BD personnel in a far-flung country, and they turn it down. And they report that offer properly to the compliance function. Are you under an obligation to turn that information over to the government? Uh, should you turn that over? Should you save it? Should you use it as a negotiating chip for a non-FCPA matter? Are you putting um, your people in danger by reporting it when they're still it there? Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the ramifications of reporting? What will happen to your your people? What will happen to your company? All questions which we do not know the answer to, uh, as we have not seen this play out. But I've been trying to think through what some of the practical effects are. I, I cannot disagree that this was a huge hole in anti-corruption enforcement in the United States. The FCPA was a supply side law. It always was. From 1977 forward, we, we both, uh, you know, crowed about that. Uh, and it was time for that hole to be filled or that gap to be filled. But I think there's some significant consequences that uh, I think people are playing them out or gaming them out, but we really don't know how they're going to play out in the real world. Yep. Stay tuned. We'll be following this one for sure. So uh, I thought there was another very interesting article from the Compliance and Enforcement blog over at the NYU School of Law, and this one was about key corporate governance issues for 2024. And, you know, you and I can uh, not necessarily debate, but we can talk about what are some of the most important things, whether it be analytics, data analytics, whether it be data-driven compliance, whether it be enforcement actions, whether it be corporate culture, whether it be investigations and the need for speed whether it be self-disclosure, but I'm almost coming around to thinking, Christy, that 2024 may be the year of the board. Mm -hmm. And 
that's because of all of the pressures we've talked about that have been put on compliance professionals uh, throughout the Biden administration, where uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco uh, has uh, made pronouncements. She's released the Monaco memo. We had the 2023 ECCP. We had the uh, recidivism, not recidivism, the consequence management uh, component of the new pilot program around clawbacks, all of those things. Uh, I think boards are going to have greater need for uh, more subject matter experts. And this article really talks a little bit about that, but they can take a broader picture. So they look at key principles for board effectiveness, collaboration with management, doing oversight, soft skills, balancing short and long-term, being innovative. But there are key pressure points, and that includes individual director performance, director participation in shareholder meetings, being engaged versus overstepping your boundary. What about director bandwidth? If you're getting paid Mm $400,000 for your board gig, how many do you have? How much time do you have uh, to spend? Uh, The Stakeholder Balancing Act. And some of the key issues these uh, group of people see is obviously ESG, but uh, I mentioned regulatory pressure. I think the continued collision of politics and business will be important. That leading to shareholder activism. Uh, We haven't even gotten to cybersecurity threats or talked about AI and the board. Uh, As a subset of ESG, what about energy transition? And then uh, executive compensation, including clawbacks. So I think the role of the board is going to become more challenging, more difficult. Boards need diversity, but diversity of thought. They need a Christy Grant Hart (laughs) because she's a woman because she's one of the top compliance professionals in the United States. And we need boards to have that resource. Now, I understand they can have an outside uh, professional resource available to them, but that's very different than being on the board. And um, so I hope boards will, and, and that compliance is just one, one area of expertise, obviously AI, obviously cyber, um, risk management, a wide variety of other uh, disciplines that I think boards need. And I think greater pressure is going to be put on boards. And just as the Department of Justice has said, we expect immediate self-disclosure and immediate release of information. Well, that puts a huge amount of pressure on boards of directors uh, to make the decision or not uh, to self-disclose if an issue arises. So, Tom, this article was so well-written. When I first saw it, I'm like, wow, this is long. But it wasn't just every single paragraph was really, really interesting and making great points. But the one that really stood out to me, I will bring it back to AI. We're going to be talking about AI a bit today, was that in the 2023 proxy season, uh, the article says we saw the first shareholder proposals calling for disclosure of the board's oversight of AI and of their ethical guidelines on the use of AI. Do you think that this type of shareholder activism is going to rise relating to things like AI and AI use? Uh, I think it will, uh, in large part, because number one, it's so new. Number two, there are really no regulations or even a framework for regulations around this. Uh, Companies are struggling with it. Governments are struggling with it. Regulators are struggling with it. Um, And I think we're going to continue to struggle. But as everyone struggles for some type of framework, it's going to evolve faster than that evolution of regulations. So 
it's going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, I, I love being in the middle of this in real time. You and I have both um, seen compliance evolve. Uh, but looking back now, what I thought was a fast pace of evolution, not very fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, chat GPT is just over a year old. Uh, and that's the revolution wrought in the last year has been beyond exponential. So who knows? Who knows? It's I gone, think that it'll, it'll, we do have a, a little bit of a framework now, obviously we've got the EU um, act, AI act that we covered a little bit at the end of last year. So I, I wonder if that's going to catch on in a broad way, like with GDPR, but again, to be TBD this year, 2024. Um, one of the other places we're going to be spending a lot of time though, for sure is going to be on the difficulty of tracing forced labor in the supply chain and the continued attention on this. So um, the article I wanted to highlight comes from the Supply Chain Brain blog. I had never seen the Supply Chain Brain blog, but it was very good. And it was called New Action from the White House Highlights the Difficulty of Tracing Forced Labor Supply in China. So the article highlights the Biden administration's slate of new initiatives and policies aimed at strengthening the U.S. supply chain and tackling forced labor issues. So the author asks, goes through a bunch of the different you know, recent um, acts, especially uh, the one in uh, Uyghur. And then he asks a controversial question, which is, okay, why do we have all these new proclamations? Does this mean that the old ones aren't working? Um, so the author notes the difficulties in tackling a long supply chain. He correctly states that there are few databases or technologies that can help find every supplier, much less the ultimate beneficial owners of each. Obviously a problem for sanctions, but equally a problem for what we're dealing with in supply chain. So he advocates something called risk mapping. And apparently um, the Department of Labor has endorsed this approach and even has free tools to help companies use it, which I hadn't seen before. Um, And this is the process of visualizing data to track risk along the supply chain to really help you with a more informed risk-based approach. So the author finishes by discussing the need to get better transparency and accountability which are great words, but I'm not sure that we know how to do those very well yet um, in supply chain due diligence. So I certainly agree with him. More questions than answers, but I'm glad that we continue to see initiatives and pushing for this. Um, Tom, there is such a challenge getting supply chain data to find out where risk really exists, especially in that nth supplier, that that wonderful nth supplier. Um, Where do you recommend the compliance officers start in light of all these new initiatives and ideas? So Christy, I recommend you start with the nth and you literally start down the chain all the way down, because unless you know who your suppliers are, you cannot begin to do the analysis that you just took us through. Mm -hmm. And you don't know who's in your supply chain. You wake up one day and you read about forced labor in this, not, you know, some sea you never heard of or some uh, inlet to some sea you never heard of. And they now have forced labor and that fish product is in your frozen fish here in the United States. And you didn't know about it because you didn't go to that nth, nth degree. And in conflict minerals, uh, companies had to do this starting with Dodd-Frank. And so it can be done. And it's an important exercise from the business perspective alone so that you will know not only who's in your supply chain and what's in your supply chain, but with the Issues around geopolitical um, changes, uh, that could be a country that can change, but your trade route, and we've seen in in, uh, the Red Sea, 
Mm. Um, in the Straits of Hormuz, that going on right now. So you may not know where the next bottleneck is going to be. Uh, you know, I think it was two years ago, uh, the Intel Suez Canal was blocked off for 13 days because a ship ran aground. Uh, so you have to be ready from the business perspective to pivot if you need to. So it's, yes, it's work, but I think it's a good exercise from the business perspective in addition to human rights, compliance, and the other reasons you articulated. There's going to be so much more pressure on this in 2024, Tom, as we get CSRD and the first reports due in 2025 from the European law about what happened in 2024. And I don't know if you read this, but um, it was kind of breaking news recently that there has been movement on the CSDDD, as it's called, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive. There's an agreed upon text now that has to go to the final review, but they're expecting that to be finalized before the EU elections in June. I mean, that's going to require huge amounts of disclosure. So I think we're going to get closer, like you've described with conflict minerals. This year is going to be the year of this. I really feel like that. Um, emojis. Do you Switching use emojis? <laughs> yes. What's your relationship to emojis? Are the Is it firm? Is it uh, controversial? Is it questionable uh i just um oh and this comes to us from the fcpa blog i should introduce the topic but dick casson is worried about the use of emojis because of the ambiguity around the emojis and i think it's a good topic to raise christy but once again just because something's new and different doesn't mean we don't have a framework for it and simply because uh, you see a smiley face or a sad face or a thumbs up or a thumbs down um, or a fire or a not fire, whatever it may be, um, I think that those types of biz, those types of communications, which may have started out as casual communications and are now part of the business world, uh, can be dealt with. And so I don't think it really creates a problem or compliance, uh, because I think it's communicating a thought. And you and I, I, I can't remember the episode, but I think you were fairly well aghast that a contract was uh, formed with a thumbs up emoji. Um, I was not at all. And the reason was in college, I took a business law class when the professor uh, gave an example of the creation of a contract in the great state of Texas. I put a newspaper on the counter at 7-Eleven. The clerk looks at me and I put 25 cents down. He picks up that 25 cents. We have now created a contract, executed that contract, and no words were spoken. Uh, You can have an oral contract. You can have a handshake contract. So we've always been able to have contracts which were not in writing drafted by lawyers and signed by lawyers. And now we can create a contract with an emoji. That doesn't surprise me. And people communicating their feelings, wishes, expressions, whatever it may be with emojis. I just, I don't see this as a problem. I see it as an evolution in communications. My daughter communicates in ways that not only do I not communicate, but I never even thought of communicating. Uh, and if I try to communicate it in her style, she just says, stop it, dad, just stop it, <laughs> you know, dad, stop it. Uh, and so, uh, things always evolve. And 
well, it's like AI. I mean, it's evolving very quickly, but it's just kind of the next step. And quit worrying about where it's going. We have frameworks in place. If you're not sure what something means, ask about it. And um, so maybe it's good to think about these things, but I just don't see it as a big problem. I see it's just an evolutionary step in communications. Well, I had a lot of thoughts about this. I mean, yes, we did. We covered the Canadian grain contract um, on one of our previous episodes. I was surprised to see that more than 200 cases uh, relate to emojis or have emojis as part of their fact pattern um, that have now been tried or have been adjudicated and written about. Uh, I also thought it was interesting, though, there was an article, there was a, a quote there in that blog piece from a writer at The Atlantic that said that the plausible deniability or the purposeful misinterpretation or availability of that ambiguity was actually something that might be a reason to be using those emojis. I thought that was a really interesting point of view that, you know, maybe they're actually being used on purpose to say, okay, yes, maybe, maybe not. Um, I think that is a problem for compliance. If we start to look at that and have to second guess what they're all meaning, that can be a challenge. Um, my team, all my whole company took Teams training a couple of years ago to make sure we all knew how to use it. And we don't use the GIFs and the emojis because it's just, I just think there's danger in all of it. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me that, that, you know, Microsoft put that into its product for business use. So it's going nowhere. We can't do anything about it, right? And, you know, this, listening to this, Christy, made me think about, okay, you've, you've got an emoji. It may convey a negative thought, maybe. Uh, but who created that emoji and what was their intent hmm. behind that? And uh, you said, well, Microsoft put it in and Microsoft put it in Teams. Well, how do we know what Microsoft intended it to mean? I, um, so I grew up in a place where the university's um, hand sign was a thumbs up, mm. just that. And uh, it meant something very specific to that university. Um, as I moved out into the wider world, I found out that that meant not gigamaggies, but it meant, <laughs> yeah or positive, or I agree. I went to Europe and I found out, you know, it means something different in Europe when you flip your thumb at somebody. Um, and so the context of the person putting that thumb up may mean something, but Microsoft may have meant it to be a thumb up. Yes, positive. I agree. Um, and so I don't know how, you know, there's no, there's no emoji agency which defines them all for us and says you can only use this emoji in certain circumstances. Um, so if I use it, maybe it is subject to interpretation, but I just don't find it to be a problem. All right. Well, if you're scuba diving, Tom, just for the record, this means we're going up for the record. So there we are. There we are. Um, there we are. All right. Let's uh, let's switch over to government use of AI. So we're staying on this digital train, going to the great state of Maryland for a new executive order uh, on the regulation of AI. So this comes from the Washington Post. It's titled, Maryland Looks to Harness AI for Government Use with Executive Order. So Governor Westmoreland signed an executive order calling for the state to develop guardrails to protect residents from the risk of bias and discrimination from the use of AI. To my disappointment, but not surprise, 
The order did not specify how the government intends to use AI in the future or put up these guardrails. Rather, the state will create an AI sub-cabinet to convene a 90-day policy period to study AI and come up with these guidelines. So the order cites what sounds like a very interesting bland list of corporate values as its starting point, including fairness, equity, innovation, privacy, and accountability. All good words, but it'd be better to know how they're going to be used. Um, and the article notes that at least 15 states have passed laws in 2023 relating to AI tools, most of which are, and I'm quoting here from the article, aimed at getting lawmakers up to speed on the concerns emerging as the AI technology expands. So we need laws to tell the lawmakers to look at AI so that they can figure out what to do. Um, the article also notes that the federal government has been, quote, inclined to use a light touch in regulating the industry, unquote. Uh, unlike the EU, for the record. The Maryland law has some concrete benefits, however, including plans to modernize the state government's digital systems to expand critical infrastructure to prepare for AI and new technologies. Um, okay, so once again, the U.S. states are leading the way, but not yet with any kind of teeth. And Europe is moving faster than us here in America, also not surprising. And the federal government is doing the occasional hearing. So crystal ball time. All right, 2024, we're early 2024 here. What is your prediction in United States AI regulation? Do we get anything this year from the states or from the government? Um, I have zero hope that our federal government will do anything, uh, certainly Congress. Um, we'll have perhaps regulatory frameworks. Uh, Matt Kelly and I discussed an enforcement action involving the FTC and Rite Aid around uh, misuse of facial rec recognition software and AI in that. And so uh, that really led me to think, one, we already have some frameworks in place, but two, we'll see it nibble around on the edge um, because we don't have an over overarching framework. I'm not sure which government agency should really even do this. It, I suppose the SEC will take the lead, but doesn't strike me as really an SEC issue, although, you know, perhaps it is in the uh, Chairman Gensler's eyes, but we've got the FTC because it's a trade commission. It was a consumer trade issue. Um, it may become a trading issue with the CFTC. Uh, it might become a banking issue with the CFPB. So um, it may also become an employment issue because the California and Illinois laws deal with employee AI use of looking through, um, you know, uh, CVs and things like that. So we may have that too. And, uh, you know, could then even lead to protected activity under the National Labor Relations Act. So right. Right. we could have a variety of agencies look at it. Yep. Oh my gosh. Let's cross the pond, Tom. Uh, let's cross <laughs> the pond. Horrible. Um, this is horrible. Yeah, th I've been following this case, and, and part of it is, you know, I cannot take my eyes away from the train wreck. Uh, it's just beyond belief what happened in this case. And this is the continued fallout from Neil Girard, Decker, uh, the Serious Fraud Office, and ENRC. And what happened in this case was ENRC's lawyer, Neil Girard, passed along confidential information to the Serious Fraud Office about his client without his client's approval. His client that was then had a multi-year investigation, uh, eventually dismissed. Uh, ENRC brought suit against Deckert, Neil Gerard. Uh, Neil Gerard was uh, 
civilly convicted at trial, as well as his former law firm, Deckert. And this case was against the uh, Serious Fraud Office. And the court absolutely skewered the Serious Fraud Office. It is uh, everything that they said Deckert did and Gerard did, the Serious Fraud Office engaged in. And the Serious Fraud Office knew or should have known that he didn't have the right to bring this information. It was confidential information given to him from his client, which he did not have authority to release to the Serious Fraud Office. The court did not assess a criminal penalty. But I believe Deckard has paid in the range of 10 to 20 million as a preliminary or first round payment, uh, subject to a final judgment against them for the damages of ENRC. But um, no, nobody came out of this looking good. The Serious Fraud Office looks terrible. Decker took a huge black eye. Neil Gerard has been essentially disbarred, uh, cannot practice law in the United Kingdom anymore. So, um, but I can't take my eyes off it. <laughs> they had I, uh, 30 meetings, 30, 30 private meetings with your company's attorney handing over confidential information that gets you prosecuted and costs millions of pounds in legal fees that you're charging them to get their confidential information to the regulator. Oh my God. It's just, it's just incredible. If you haven't dug into this one, it's good times or bad times. I mean, <laughs> but good times for the, for the compliance podcasts. It's good times, right? So Christy, what is, um, work-life balance? What's work-life balance? I don't know. But what I want to talk about is what work life uh, has talked about, about what's in and out for 2024. I think Tom, you and I both know our work life balance is, um, poorly done in our own personal life. So we'll, you know, we'll skip that part. Um, but what I was looking for was this, uh, it's new to, it's 2024, new year, new you, all that stuff. And so this one actually came kind of roundabout way. Uh, the New York times had an article stating that in and out lists were seriously in for 2024, especially on TikTok. So I decided to find one that didn't focus on fashion trends, but instead was focused on workplace trends for the year. So let's look at this fun infographic and talk about what's in and out. So when it comes to our much talked about friend AI, scaremongering is out and pragmatism is in. That sounds like a good, good idea. Similarly, the lack of regulation in AI is so 2023, that's out in favor of AI regulation drama, which of course we are so here for this at the uh, Two Gurus Talk Compliance podcast. Um, AI hiring audits, where you see if you're actually getting your DE&I uh, accomplishments, they're in and companies uh, missing those goals is so out. Um, but they made some very odd choices. So apparently stressing out at home is out, but we're all so good at it. Uh, while corporate all-hands meditations are in, apparently, according to Work-Life Blog. So that sounds like something that would only happen in my home state of California, and even then it seems a bit odd, but okay, apparently they're very in. Uh, AI skills are in, but apparently soft skills are out. Uh, disagree, soft skills will never be out of fashion for management. But one other highlight I found interesting, they said expensing Wi-Fi, totally out, but apparently Expensing Taylor Swift tickets is totally in for 2024. So, um, you know, my family, we're going over to London uh, later this year. It happens to be at the same time that the uh, Taylor Swift conference con uh, concert is happening at Wembley. The resale tickets are at least $2,000. So if you can expense those tickets to your company, you may want to check your gift and hospitality first, even if doing so is totally in during 2024. <laughs> 
I, you know, I hadn't really appreciated the use of AI in the HR process until you mentioned that in our last segment, Christy. But uh, it seems to me that the hiring audit and the hiring audit process may become more important now because companies are going to have, you know, that they've used formulas for years and were chastised for it. Now they're using AI and one, I'm not sure of the legality, but two, it, it just seems like you're missing so many good people by having this rote formalization of, you know, top, top five law schools, top 10%. We Guess know all what? about that. Don't we Tom from our backgrounds? Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, okay. Culture assessment. Uh, I think, this was, is an important issue, and it's, uh, I selected for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you don't know Jim Deloach, the article of this uh, piece, you really should. Jim is one of the true gentlemen in internal audit, governance, risk, and compliance. He's been doing this literally forever, um, and Jim is one of the senior statesman in our field, once again, from really the internal audit perspective. So he brings a little bit different uh, uh, perspective than you and I do as lawyers, Christy. And uh, when Jim writes, you need to read it. And I thought this article was really significant and important because he laid out the uh, things you should themes of a cultural assessment and why it's essential tool, not to comply with what Lisa Monaco talked about in the Monaco memo in her speech the year before that led to the Monaco memo, but on why a corporation's culture needs to be assessed and <clears throat> management needs to understand what people literally from the shop floor all the way up are doing. We are in an incredibly dynamic environment. We are at a generational shifting point where certainly my generation is moving off to the sunset. Um, and there's a new generation, uh, two generations below me coming into the workforce. They don't talk like me. They don't dress like me. They don't sound like me. They don't think like me. And they have different cultural values than I do. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but we've got five generations in the workplace now, Christy. And you better be aware of all of them. Uh, because navigating and managing all five of those is becoming incredibly complex and difficult. So having a culture assessment is a key way to do that. And, oh, by the way, the Department of Justice says it's really all about culture. So we want to know about your culture. So you can uh, satisfy the DOJ as well. Um, and let me tie it back to Jim Deloach. When Jim Deloach writes, you need to read because he really is one of the true statesmen in our field. And when he puts uh, pen to paper, it's something that everyone can use. So Tom, I like this article, but I always get concerned when we talk about internal audit doing culture assessments. Um, you know, EY wrote something, wrote a, a white paper on this when I was in London still, uh, four, five, six years ago, something like that. And Basically, the auditors that I knew went, uh, squidgy, squidgy, you're talking about things that don't have data points, it's making me uncomfortable, I don't want to judge this, this is not something that I can really say anything other than this is how it feels, or this is what two people told me, but is that real? I think compliance is in a much better position to get comfortable with that ambiguity, 
do you think that internal audit is the right place for this kind of review? I think they are a tool that can be used. I think there's a variety of tools you can use, and I think you should use more than one of those tools to give you as broad and round a picture as possible. But the other thing, I mean, you're spot on on the squishiness. (laughs) On the other hand, if you can begin to put a framework around it, then you can begin to measure it. And that's what internal audit is very good at. And I would suggest perhaps better than lawyers, certainly better than this lawyer uh, in doing that. So I welcome their input. And if uh, they do have some of the issues or difficulties that you've articulated, then, you know, they can work with compliance. They can work with HR. Uh, they can work with other corporate disciplines to put together uh, a more fully rounded and functional culture assessment. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And they're the ones on the ground typically for two weeks at a time in far-flung locations. So that does give them a definite advantage. Shall we, Tom, turn (laughs) to our first Florida person of the year? I think it's time. Uh, Florida person. I think we're here. Okay. What do we got? So our story comes from Florida woman's quest for justice in the wake of a terrible deception inflicted on her by none (sighs) other than a Reese's peanut butter Halloween pumpkin candy. So what did this offending pumpkin do? He didn't have eyes or a smile. So Florida woman, Cynthia Kelly, alleges in her $5 million class action suit against Hershey's that she never, ever, never, ever, never, ever would have bought the peanut butter pumpkin if she'd known it didn't have the eyes and smile cut into it as shown on the wrapper. So when she opened the package, she was horrified to find a plain pumpkin-shaped candy as opposed to a smiling one. So from there, she was so on it. She found to her horror that this act of deception was being perpetrated by the company, not just in the peanut butter pumpkins, but the white pumpkin, the pieces pumpkin, the peanut butter ghost, the white ghost, and others. So she's seeking class action status on behalf of the numerous consumers that have been, quote, tricked and misled, unquote by the product's packaging. So what will happen here? Well, the article notes that for a judge and jury to side with plaintiffs, Kelly's lawyer will have to successfully make the case that the ads would trick a reasonable consumer. That is the legal standard. And Tom, I think this is why they filed in Florida. A jury in Florida, men and women, are going to be her peers assessing whether a reasonable consumer, who that is for this case, case closed. The reasonable Florida man and woman. Exactly. The reasonable Florida consumer was going to be mad about the smiling ghost. Well, Christy, it was a great first episode for 2024. I greatly look forward to uh, continuing to find out the adventures of Florida person. Uh, And I'm Tom Fox. I'm Christy Grant Hart. Take care. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to the award-winning Two Gurus Talk Compliance. This was our first episode of 2024, and I hope you will join us throughout the year. Kristen and I get together every other week and post typically on Friday, although we're a day late on this one due to some technical issues. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.